This episode of Cape Up is sponsored by MeUndies. Remember to visit MeUndies.com slash Cape Up to get 20% off the best and softest underwear and socks you'll ever own. Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart and welcome to Cape Up. Back in August, white supremacists, neo-Nazis, and other racists unleashed a certain kind of terror on the people of Charlottesville. Well, the people are fighting back through a lawsuit helmed by Roberta Kaplan, the woman who successfully argued the case that hastened marriage equality in the United States. Hear what this case is all about right now. Roberta Kaplan, thank you very much for being on the podcast. It's a pleasure. Tell me about this lawsuit. This is pretty novel, isn't it? Yes and no. Let me start with the no, and then I'll tell you the yes. <laughs> um, the no is if you go back, and some of this I've just been reading about recently, into U.S. history, including right after the Civil War. There's a new biography out you probably know about by Ron Chernow about Ulysses S. Grant. Yeah. And he had an attorney general by the name of Amos Ackerman. And it turns out that Amos Ackerman was a lawyer who was appointed AG, and his main job as the attorney general was to go after the reign of terror against the freed slaves in the South and the Ku Klux Klan. He ultimately had to quit that job, given political pressures on him. And then again, in the 1940s, there were efforts by the Civil Rights Division of the United States Department of Justice to go after the Klan and white supremacists in the South and to stop their reign of terror. And while I'm certainly not the Department of Justice, in one sense, the case that we've recently brought in Charlottesville is just another version of that, using the same laws that were passed when Amos Ackerman was the Attorney General. Do you think if we had another Department of Justice that your lawsuit would be unnecessary? I'm not in a position to answer that question, although we would very much uh, encourage and appreciate the support of the Department of Justice. And if the United States were to want to intervene in this case as a plaintiff, I can't imagine that we would oppose that. Um, So let's talk about the case. The brief is about 96 pages long. You have people who are going on the record, meaning they're using their real names. You have other people who are going by, there's Jane Doe 1 and and Jane Doe 2 and other people who don't want to have their names out there. Who are these plaintiffs and what are their stories that make this case so compelling? So it's really a cross-section both of the community in Charlottesville and of the people who were injured and affected by what happened on August 11, 12. So we have uh, University of Virginia undergraduates who were there on Friday night when the Nazis surrounded the Thomas Jefferson statute on the rotunda. We have a worker who worked in the UVA library who was there that night and rushed out to help and then suffered a stroke. We have the minister, Seth Wispelay, who was in charge of kind of organizing the clergy against what was about to happen and training them in nonviolence. And we have three, I'm not even giving you the complete list, we have three plaintiffs who were directly there standing next to Heather Heyer when the car hit her in an act of domestic terrorism, two of whom had their legs crushed, and one of whom, Marissa, whose life was saved because her fiancé Marcus pushed her out of the way um, and really saved her life in doing so. Why did they feel it was important that they be a part of this case? I can just imagine what they went through was terrible and terrifying. 
And from what I understand and from what I read, Charlottesville is not out of danger in that the white supremacists and the bigots, they're still hovering around there. And yet here are people who are willing to put themselves on the line again to be a part of this suit. Why did they feel it was important to be a part of this, do you think? So, you know, I think the best way to put it is the way one of the plaintiffs said to me, we were down in Charlottesville last week kind of finalizing the complaint and getting ready to file. And we met with all the plaintiffs and we put in security precautions for the plaintiffs. And one of the plaintiffs said to me, look, given the trauma that we've experienced, I see this as a way to fight back. And this is my way to fight back and tell these people that this is wrong and stop them from doing it and kind of creating my own sense of agency about what happened here and making sure that the people who did it both have to pay damages so that they can never do this again and get injunctive relief so they can never do it again. Okay, so who are these people? Who who are the defendants here? Because they are named. This is not just sort of a blanket, this is a lawsuit against white supremacists. No, and, and unlike the plaintiffs, we don't have any John Doe defendants here. So we have 26 defendants. Some are individuals, some are groups. They are all racist, anti-Semitic, xenophobic, homophobic. Some I self-identify as Nazis, some self-identify as KKK, some self-identify as alt-right or white supremacists. But what they all have in common, with the exception of one individual, and I can explain that, they all not only took part in this meticulous planning over many, many weeks to plan for what happened in Charlottesville, to make sure that there would be violence, to talk about the best ways to promote, encourage, and engage in violence, And then every single one of them, except for one, as I mentioned, was there on August 11th, 12th, encouraging the violence, inciting the violence, and one of them even punched people, we know for sure, while they were there. How do you know they planned this? We have the most extensive record that I personally, I'm not a spring chicken anymore. So (laughs) the most extensive record that I've ever seen in a case, certainly a conspiracy case, of the communications that these defendants engaged in with each other on the internet, on a kind of a secret chat room called Discord that they use to communicate. We have enormous amounts of detail in their own words of what they said and what they did to promote and essentially make this happen. And, and, and what's interesting in this case, there have been some talk about First Amendment and how you know they have a complete defense under the First Amendment, but that's really kind of misconceived in a lot of ways. To argue that these defendants have a First Amendment defense here would be like arguing that a bunch of bank robbers who plan by email and and text and on chat rooms how to rob a bank have a complete defense because they communicated with each other, as, as criminals always do, in order to bring about the bank robbery. That's exactly what was happening here. I read, you know, the Washington Post wrote the story about about your lawsuit and they interviewed some of the folks and they're making these like, well, we didn't do anything. But the evidence that you present in the lawsuit from social media is just, I didn't even write it down. It was so shocking and filled with N-bombs and F-bombs. Where yeah, it they, probably should be rated at least PG-13, probably R. Yeah, I would say R or, or you know, NC-17, just how like they were all about inciting violence or looking for it when they went to Charlottesville. Absolutely correct. And again, if Nazis or KKK or white supremacists just want to stand peacefully on a street corner and hold up a sign saying they hate Jews or they hate black people, or as one of them said, they want Auschwitz to happen again... That is protected speech. I have no issue with that. But that's not what happened here. What, the, what they did is they planned, coordinated, 
talked about how to bring about violence, talked about what tools to use for the violence to happen, and then in connection with those things said horrible things about black people, Jews, and gay people. But that doesn't mean that it's all of a sudden protected speech. Right. And then one thing you left out is that after planning it and talking about it, once it was over, they bragged about what happened. And one of the one of the instances in the lawsuit, you pull up something from the loyal white knights of the Ku Klux Klan. And in it, you, you have here, following the events in Charlottesville on August 11th and August 12th, the loyal white knights changed their outgoing voicemail message to say, quote, nothing makes us more proud at the KKK than when we see white patriots such as James Fields Jr., age 20, taking his car and running over nine communist anti-fascists, killing one end lover named Heather Heyer. James Fields, hail victory. It's men like you that have made the great white race strong and will be strong again. And that's just one of many things that are in the lawsuits. That is blood curdling. How on earth is that protected speech? It isn't, Jonathan. And it's it's actually, it's what I said before, it's shocking here. Not only do we have extensive evidence, even before we get into discovery, it's going to be much better when I get to depose these people and get their documents. But we have extensive evidence before what happened, of their planning of the events that happened. We have extensive evidence on videotape and everything else of what they did, their pictures in the complaint of them punching people and macing people. And then, as you put it, we have extensive evidence afterwards bragging about what they did and taking delight in the fact that someone was killed and that people were hurt. The plants in our case, this is not a defamation case. We're not suing them because they hate Jews or they hate blacks or they hate foreigners. That's not the case. It's not about defamation. It's about people who are being hurt. We have one client, Jane Doe One, who had both of her legs crushed when James Fields rammed his car into the protesters, something that in their pre-planning, they explicitly encouraged people to do and talked about whether it was illegal under North Carolina law or Virginia law to ram a car into which into groups of people and which car would be best to do it with. That's right. One of the things you have in there is that I, I think it was like on a message board or somewhere, someone asking, hey, is it legal in North Carolina to ram your car in, into a crowd of people? And I, if I remember correctly, the person writes, I know it's legal in some states, but I'm really asking seriously about North Carolina. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Pretty scary stuff. And then we even have pictures. If you look at page 68, where we discuss this in the complaint, there's a picture of this John Deere harvester, this huge green, looks like a tractor to me because I live in New York, but this huge green machine that apparently they use for harvesting corn. And they've retitled it, introducing the John Deere multi-lane protester digester. They were explicit about what they wanted to do, and they did it. This episode of Cape Up is sponsored by MeUndies. MeUndies will be the most comfortable pair of underwear you will ever own. With tons of styles and patterns to choose from for both men and ladies, MeUndies will have the perfect fit for any personality. And for a limited time only, check out MeUndies' first ever glow-in-the-dark print, Lights Out. To get 20% off the best and softest underwear and socks you will ever own, free shipping, and a 100% satisfaction guarantee, go to MeUndies.com slash CapeUp. That's MeUndies.com slash CapeUp. How confident are you? And I'm glad you mentioned that this is this is not a defamation suit. How confident are you that 
in the America we're in today that the case that you've brought and the argument that you're making will win the day? I like to bring cases where I'm very confident that the argument that I, I have and the evidence I have will win the day. I, I did that with the Edie Windsor case, and, and Edie Windsor died only three or four weeks ago, and I keep thinking that she's looking down on us doing this case with pride. I am very confident that with this record, no court can dismiss this case. The evidence pre-discovery, as I said before, is overwhelming. I'm convinced that when a jury hears and sees what these guys did and hears out of their own mouths what they said and what they did, they will find liability. And I'm very confident that they will issue punitive damages such that many of these people will have a very hard time doing it ever again because they will have judgments chasing them around for the rest of their lives. Now, the purpose of this case isn't you mentioned punitive damages, but the purpose isn't to squeeze them of, of money and get the money to the plaintiffs, is it? There's a larger thing going on here. Correct. I mean, we have plaintiffs who are legitimately injured and who would like to get back some money and compensation for how they were hurt by these guys, and I hope they do. But you're right. The larger point of this case is to make it so that anyone in the future in this country who tries to do anything like this again knows that they will be hit with a lawsuit like this, they will be hit with damages, and they won't be able to do it because they'll have this huge albatross hanging over their head of what will happen if they do. Isn't a lawsuit brought against folks who are against abortion, isn't that a a model for what you're doing here? Yeah. So I really had the idea for this case. Charlottesville happened, and obviously it was incredibly upsetting, I think, to every American uh, when we we could watch it live and see what was going on. Um, And at around that time, I had a a memory of a case that was done by my mentor, Marty London, at my old law firm of Paul Weiss, in which there had been an anti-abortion website called the Nuremberg Files. And on that website, they would print, they would publish, this is the old days of the internet, but they would publish pictures of doctors who were performing abortions out west with their home address and their telephone. And then when some of those doctors were hurt or killed, and some of them were, they would put in red X across their names. And Marty London and my then partner, Maria Vulo, brought a case against those, the people who put up that website. They won it. They got a $100 million judgment. And they stopped not only the people doing that website, but you don't see today anymore those kinds of, it's not like there aren't anti-abortion protesters, right. of course they are, but there's no website like that anymore. And that's exactly what we want to accomplish here. Did they do it in that way, meaning the, the anti-abortion people, to say, we're not inciting violence, but you put the picture, the name, the uh, address, the phone number, what do you expect to happen? Exactly. And here the argument's very even clear, because there it was a website with their name and phone number and address, etc. Here, they talk about the violence. I mean, no one has to, there has to be no kind of thinking or no kind of understanding of what they did. It's explicit. Their motive, their reasons, what they did are explicit in these voluminous evidence we set forth. What do you make? I saw a comment somewhere as I was preparing for this. Maybe it was on Slate where some commenters said something like, be careful of the tactics. Be careful of the tactics that you're using and that they're not adopted by the people you're going after, by the white supremacists. I don't see the same issue because I am not aware of anyone on the other side, certainly in Charlottesville, anyone on the other side who engaged in this kind of violent planning and discussion about weapons and violent rhetoric and then brought about violence the way that the people who did the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville did. If there are groups on the left who are seeking similarly to incite violence and foment violence, then they they should be stuck with these lawsuits too. Violence is not okay. 
in this country. And it's one thing to protest your beliefs or to espouse your beliefs as hateful and as disgusting as they are. It's another thing to use those beliefs as a motivating force to plan, plot, and execute violence against minorities. And that's what happened. You know, there are two stories that have popped of late that are just mind-boggling. One is the warrant for the arrest of the black man who was beaten in the parking garage. And then just recently, there was another story about the black man with the flamethrower who is either there's a warrant out for his arrest or, or he's being sued. What, what is that about? Look, I'm no expert on Virginia law, and so I'm, you know, some of these facts we're learning as you're learning them, Jonathan. But I understand in Virginia, almost anyone can go to a magistrate and say, so-and-so hit me, and they will issue a warrant. And that's what I understand happened here. But obviously, that's going to have to be subject to proof and evidence. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if they have the proof and evidence, they do. But I kind of doubt that they do. I mean, it it really is incredible. I mean, that in this day and age, you can watch someone being being beaten. And yet that person is is a warrant out for their arrest. And then what's even more chilling about the black man with the flamethrower is that minutes later, even moments later, you see a white man just pull out a handgun and fire a round off at him. And luckily, I put a thing out on Twitter asking, uh, what about the white man who did this? And everyone immediately said, no, 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 the authorities have him. Um, The other thing is these people engage, I hate to use this phrase because I know it's such a hot phrase now, but they engage in fake news. I mean, they say things happen when they didn't happen. Now, even though they were all promoting, as we prove, to have someone drive into protesters, they're now suggesting, I can see, we've seen some of the reaction to the complaint, that James Fields running into the protesters with his car was fake news. Does it trouble you, first as a lawyer and then as an American, that you and I are have legitimately having this discussion about whether or not something happened that we all saw with our own eyes thanks to video. I'm not sure I have words to express how dismaying and how troubling this is. And, and that's one of the reasons why we're doing this case, because there is such thing as truth. <laughs> there is such thing as right and wrong. Saying in posts, first stop Charlottesville, next stop Auschwitz is wrong. All Americans can agree that that's wrong. And fomenting violence and getting people to do things to Jewish people, the synagogue here almost got bombed. They were threatening to bomb the synagogue. They had to move all the Torah scrolls out of the synagogue on August 12th when this was going on. That is wrong. And I think we all as Americans, whether left or right, pro-Trump or anti-Trump, it doesn't matter. This stuff should not be controversial anymore. You are bringing this lawsuit through a nonprofit that you've started called Integrity First for America. What is the goal of this 501c3? So the goal of the 501c3, and I'm not I'm not on the board. I'm not part of the 501c3. I'm one of the lawyers that they've hired. But as I understand it, the goal of the the 501c3 is to promote in our country in which they are so gravely threatened, democratic values. The small d. Small d. Principles, anti-corruption principles so that public officials cannot profit off of being in office. Equal rights issues, fundamental equal rights issues like we saw in Charlottesville. And to use the tools not only of public education, but of the courts as an instrument of public education in order to promote those values. I mean, this sounds like during the the civil rights movement in the 50s and the 60s, using the courts not only to educate the American people, but to also fight for the rights of a minority. 
Absolutely. I haven't seen the Marshall movie yet, and I haven't had a chance to take my young son to see it, but I intend to do so very, very soon. I understand that's exactly... I know that's what Thurgood Marshall did, and I know that I understand that that's what the movie's about. So you mentioned her a moment ago, Edie Windsor, who passed away. How old was she? 80? 88. A- 88 years old. Edie Windsor, who she is had a the, long run. the Windsor of United States v. Windsor. How did you meet her? Oh. God, that's, it seems so long ago, but in reality, it really wasn't. I met Edie when Edie had to pay this really unjust estate tax bill to the federal government because she was gay under a statute that was known as the Defense of Marriage Act, or DOMA. And she said when she had to pay this tax, she felt an indignity uh, that she was being treated differently than other Americans just because she was a lesbian and had been married to another woman. And she went looking for a lawyer to bring the case. And lucky for me, she ended up calling me. I've been out with the two of you. I did an event with the two of you. We went out to dinner. And the relationship between the two of you was so, it was so interesting, a little bit quirky. It was like mother, daughter, sisters, older cousin, younger cousin, but through it, it, like friends. Yeah, I I think all the comparisons you gave were absolutely accurate because we were like family. Um, and there's a new documentary out that just premiered at the Woodstock Film Festival this weekend called uh, Done by Donna Zaccaro, who is uh, Geraldine Ferraro's Geraldine Ferraro's daughter. daughter, former Today Show producer also. And called uh, A More Perfect Union about the case and about me and Edie. And she has some coverage on there where Edie's with my son and our family. And she was a member of the family in every way. And we deeply miss her and, and always will. If she were with us right now, I know you said you think she's looking down on us right now. What advice do you think she would give you, given the new endeavors you're undertaking, from starting your own law firm to undertaking this case? And I get the sense that this is not going to be the last time you're going to bring a case like this, considering that she lived a long, fruitful, and exciting, exciting life. What advice do you think she'd give you now? Well, fortunately, I don't have to guess, because we spoke about this before she died. She knew about me starting my own law firm, leaving Paul Weiss and starting Kaplan & Company, She knew about IFA and what IFA was going to be doing. She even knew about the case in Charlottesville. And she was so proud of it all and said to me, Robbie, go get him. Had she still been alive today, I guarantee she would be here in the studio with me cheering us all on. Roberta Kaplan, attorney, founding partner of Kaplan & Company, who also represented Edie Windsor in United States versus Windsor, which paved the way to marriage equality. And more importantly, the person who, along with co-counsel Karen Dunn, who is in Washington, D.C., bringing a lawsuit against the white supremacist, racist bigots who unleashed terror on Charlottesville. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. If you like Cape Up, you should check out some of our other great podcasts. Like Can He Do That? with Allison Michaels, a podcast that explores the powers and limitations of the American presidency. Or try Constitutional a series about how people have framed and reframed the Constitution over time from host Lillian Cunningham. You can find these shows anywhere you listen to podcasts and learn more online at WashingtonPost.com slash podcasts. The Washington 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 Post. Post.